Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by James Emsley. James is the CEO of ELM Legal Services in Bristol, a legal practice which provides will writing and estate planning services across the whole of the UK. James, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Not a problem. It's a real pleasure having you, James. Now, the purpose of uh, this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader on its own for a moment, what does that word mean to you and how does it resonate? Well, primarily, I mean, leadership is something which um, uh, is paramount in any particular organisation because without it, um, uh, and any kind of organization is going to um, sort of um, uh, flay about and not be able to uh, correlate itself particularly well. Um, all um, entities have uh, leadership in, in that particular aspect. And if we think about your leadership style, uh, James, in the context of ELM, how would you describe that? Uh, here at Elm, I mean, we've got a very, very um, uh, family kind of orientated uh, environment where people are pretty much are left to their own devices uh, and get on with the work. And leadership is really where um, they need direction uh, if they've come up against a particular issue or a particular problem. Uh, be that uh, a technical issue, a legal issue, or even in some regards, some uh, personal issues. You know, it's being able to say, look, this is the way we need to be going, this is what we need to be doing, and this is how we need to be doing it. Um, and it's drawing those in. Uh, I think if you're uh, running an organization and you're a tyrant, then I don't think you're going to get very far uh, in regards to respect from your workforce. So I think leadership, there has to be some sort of um, give and take between you know, the worker and the leaders, if you like. Um, and, you know, as long as there's respect there, uh, then, you know, you're going to get a, a, a really good um, uh, production uh, from that particular workforce. If you, if you do it any other way, I feel as though, you know, you're not going to be able uh, to get the best out of your people. I think what you're saying there is absolutely right, James. I think we're moving away from that more draconian style of leadership for sure. And um, it's those people who are more towards the approach that you've outlined there who probably during this current period of COVID-19 are going to be getting the best out of those around them. And it's their employees that will really be going above and beyond for them just to keep things ticking over. And we've heard Mm -hmm. some incredible stories, haven't we, of um, how people on the front line and people um, in various roles have had, they've really gone above and beyond during this period to keep things going, whether they've been furloughed and they've been involved in community schemes, whether they've had to adapt to working remotely, or whether they've had to continue working on site under new safety guidelines. Um, I can imagine that the challenges for yourself have also been quite tremendous during this period, James. Um, how, how have you found adapting to meet the challenges of COVID-19 thus far? I found that I mean, we had a, a particular project which was uh, going to be launched this year anyway, which was going to be towards the autumn or towards the latter part of the year where we were taking uh, the provision of our services online. So we were fairly, uh, well, I wouldn't say we were in a lucky position, but we were, um, we were positioned quite well uh, when it came. Uh, there was a lot of things that were in kind of a, a beta format um, that we were testing uh, in regards to remote working and, and doing uh, stuff on on the webcam, 
Um, so when uh, lockdown actually came around, it was all guns to the uh, well, all hands to the to, to the deck, uh, and we were able to sort of roll it out uh, a little bit quicker than uh, we anticipated. And the workforce have been absolutely tremendous. I mean, we I obviously had to furlough uh, a considerable amount of uh, the workforce, but the workforce that remained. Um, were brilliant. You know, they're on uh, on ball. They, uh, you know, we had uh, regular uh, weekly meetings on webcam. Um, you know, we, we uh, yeah, if there was any questions or any queries, you know, we would be able to deal with that. Um, and it it was done very very succinctly, uh, and it was done very professionally. And uh, you know, there were obviously hiccups. And I think in any organisation where all of a sudden you've had the the rug pulled from under you. Um, it's very difficult to, to, to then bounce back from that. But from our perspective, you know, there were things that were already in the pipeline, which we just had to pull down the pipeline a little bit quicker. Um, and it's facilitated, you know, where we are today. Mm, so it seems certainly that you were in a little bit more of an advantageous position when it came to transitioning to remote working, whereas for some businesses, it's sort of forced their hand to innovate, hasn't it? They've had to almost strip everything down and rebuild Rome literally within a day. And that's proven a little yeah. bit more of a complex challenge. Um, there's also been a great deal um, of uh, debate about the fact that government guidelines and during this um, period have not necessarily been that clear as to what's expected from industry. But we're now looking to, of course, start to gradually open things up again and we're seeing new COVID secure guidelines coming out. In your sort of line of work, James, are you confident that you have been aware of what's been expected of you throughout this pandemic thus far and you are continuing to be so going forward? I think the government and I think their message has been somewhat um, uh, confusing um, to a number of individuals and uh, organisations. It's very um, difficult uh, in certain circumstances, when you look at what uh, is the message which is coming from the government, which isn't exactly the same as what it is in Wales, for example. Now, from a geographical perspective for us, you know, we're in Bristol, you know, mm. we're right on the Bristol Channel. Um, we've got staff which will be travelling in from Wales. Uh, and consequently, you know, it's a bit of a uh, hit and miss as to, you know, what are, what are they doing? Are they doing something illegally? Are they doing something? So there has been um, a, a number of issues in regards to uh, you know that particular message, but I think as time is, you know, I mean, time's a great healer. But you know, as time goes on, um, I think, and it's a great saying, and, and I'm a great believer in it. Common sense prevails. It's sort of, you know, we know what we've got to do, and we know what we've got to do in regards to social distancing. Um, and as long as we all stick to that kind of ethos uh, and common sense, you know, you know is is the ruler. Then, you know, I think things will slowly. Uh, become, for want of a better expression, you know, the the, the new norm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the message coming from the government has not been that clear and that succinct uh, at times. And I think, you know, it could have been clearer. Um, and I think that it's very difficult when you've got three entities and they're all fragmented and they've all got different messages. I think the divergence between the uh, the regional governments, the devolved nations, that's something which is going to be causing um, a few um, issues, um, isn't it? Especially in your case, given your geographical proximity to Wales, especially as you've uh, just mentioned. Um, mm. It's been a very sort of difficult and challenging time for businesses and a very tragic time for individuals as well. But what is important with regards to leadership is learning. I think we're in a constant process of learning. We're never finished articles. And this 
crisis is probably going to be one of the biggest learning curves of our time, isn't it, for both government and for business. And those businesses that do make it through, James, of course, um, there will be a new resilience bred into them. It will be vital experience of crisis management for this generation of business leaders and for employees as well. It's going to be very much character building for them in the sense that they've had to go out of their comfort zones working under different conditions so there are going to be some real positives to take from this aren't there not least due to the fact that there's also been a renewed focus on mental health well-being and sustainability crucially during this time yeah i think the workforce uh, especially my workforce here i mean they've been um, exemplary you know there's no other word for it they're, they've been absolutely fantastic that they've um, uh, all rallied around they've uh, embraced the new technology they've embraced the fact that you know there's uh, remote working um, and again you know they know what they've got to do uh, and as long as the work gets done um, then everything is um, it, it, it is worked effectively um, and I do feel for some uh, individuals you know that are isolated completely, um, and you know they're not; uh, they don't have any contact to move regards to uh, the, the outside world. Or you know, it's it, yes, it's extremely difficult for, for for mental health and for you know that particular aspect. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very trying time for everybody, and I think there will be positives that will come out of it uh, in regards to you know how people work and how people envisage that particular working environment. And it is about learning. And it is about, you know, the workforce learning and also the business and the organisation learning to be able to implement that and to be implemented effectively um, in those particular scenarios. I mean, luckily with me, you know, all of my workforce are, um, you know, have kind of uh, taken it all on board. Now, there are workforces where, you know, there are individuals that will find it difficult, you know, to, to assimilate into that particular um, uh, structure. But, you know... Uh, over a period of time, that will be identified, and you know, I, I'm sure that you know those organisations will be able to highlight that and say, look, you know, these particular individuals are struggling. We need to do something to help. Exactly, because it's about it's a people management side of leadership, isn't it? Being able to understand when people need a bit of an arm around them, when people need a different form of management to motivate them, make sure that they're on the right pathway. And that renewed focus, as we've said, on mental health and well-being should hopefully go a really long way toward that uh, during the uh, the next few weeks and months. Um, if we think about, James, um, what the future does hold now before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, what do you envision for yourself and for the practice over the course of the uh, the next year? And what do you really hope to achieve as we hopefully move through COVID-19, emerge from the pandemic and begin to look to the long term under this new normal? Well, what I would hope for is you know, it, there are certain things within the uh, legislation, within the government, which I would hope that they would have the foresight to actually change. Um, we, in, on my particular industry, um, obviously, we produce wills and trusts and such like. Um, a lot of that is regulated by fairly archaic uh, legislation, uh, namely the Wills Act 1837. Um, and that is uh, part of that uh, section. I'm not going to get into the um, the actual um, uh, semantics of it, but primarily, if you're signing a will, for example, you need to be in the physical presence of two other people, um, and that in current social distancing is very difficult. Uh, the Scottish uh, government have looked at that and they've said, look, there are ways and means to get around that, and they've allowed uh, certain aspects to be. Um, uh, signed and witnessed by the use of video technology. The UK government um, and the uh, Law Society have basically implemented it and said, you know, that's not uh, going to happen here in the UK. Uh, we will review it, but um, uh, currently it's not going to change. 
that creates a lot of problems for people because if we send out wills uh, to individuals for all intents and purposes, all that they have is two bits of paper or three, four bits of paper. Um, all that they need to do then is get it witnessed and signed. Um, if they're finding it difficult to find two people in the same room because they have to be physically together, um, it does create a problem uh, and it's a hurdle that doesn't actually need to be there. Um, so it is something which I wish the government would look at and would say to themselves, right, okay, again, common sense would prevail. You know, we're not living in the uh, 18th century anymore. You know, we do have video technology. We do have the ability to be able to witness stuff over uh, that particular medium. Um, and, you know, there are ways and means to safeguard that. You could imagine, say, you know, it's only professionals that can do that and they have to have a certain level of professionalism to actually witness the document. Um, but, you know, it could be done uh, via, uh, via, via a webcam. Um, there, there's a whole different multiple of the things in regards to that particular aspect. Um, uh, and I hope that they do change it moving forward. Um, and I think that from um, uh, another, the, the general public will also see that there's a, a change in the, in the demeanor of, of the general public in regards to technology uh, and, for example, webcams and that video technology. It's something which, Prior to uh, the lockdown and prior to COVID, uh, everybody knew it. Everybody knew it was there, but they didn't actually utilize it. Uh, and there's a lot of other technologies which were out there, which, again, were present, uh, but didn't really have their place or didn't sort of fit within society uh, that particularly well. Uh, and now, with this uh, advent of the pandemic, I think those technologies will become not um, essential, but they will definitely become uh, a, an asset within any portfolio of any business that needs to move forward. Mm, it's certainly a lot um, of food for thought for the government, uh, for sure. And hopefully, as this pandemic period has shed a light on various key issues, that there will also be some highlighting of this particular one as well going forward, James. And, you know, as we begin to understand over the next few months exactly what the new normal is looking like and what direction the industry is heading in, it would be good to actually catch up um, on the programme and have you back on with us just to see maybe how some of those hopes have been borne out and see just what, if anything, has changed in that time. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I don't mind coming back um, yeah, and having another chat. You know, it's it, it, it's all of the uncertainties at the moment. You know, that's mm. the thing which is uh, upsetting the British public. I think there's a lot of uh, prior to the pandemic, we had Brexit, and now we've got the pandemic. Um, I, I think they're all um, aching, like for for some sort of um, uh, normality where there's not going to be any uncertainty as to their futures. Uh, and hopefully, when we get through the pandemic. Uh, there won't be another crisis which will be looming on the on the horizon, um, so that people will actually feel more secure uh, mm. in their jobs and in their environments. It's just very very difficult uh, for businesses as well uh, to move in those particular uh, avenues if they're being held down by uh, uncertainties and, and quagmires of uh, difficulties which don't actually need to be there. Mm, I think that's absolutely right, James. And um, as, of course, the pandemic has been going on, there have been negotiations continuing between the UK and the European Union behind the scenes remotely. And we are still no closer to understanding whether there will be a trade deal in place by the end of the post-Brexit transitional period, which, of course, cuts off. December 31st this year and that leaves businesses again facing a cliff edge and we will be learning more about that hopefully by the end of this month as well for the benefit of those listening into this we're recording on June the 11th 2020 
2020. So by the end of June, the UK government must make a decision as to whether it wishes to pursue an extension to that transition period. Um, Hopefully, James, um, we do actually see a resolution to this by the end of the year as well, because business cannot persist with this uncertainty, can it, as you've rightfully said there? Yeah, it's a quagmire and it's very, very difficult to, 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 to find your way through it. Especially, I mean, in my industry, it's, we're mainly centred on uh, England and Wales, so we're a service industry. But if I was in the manufacturing industry and I was exporting to the uh, European Union or importing from the European Union, um, I, I would be frantic at this present moment in time because there's no, there doesn't seem to be any uh, formal or informal knowledge that's out there, you know, easily accessible. No, I think you would have to seriously go out and dig for it to, to, to find it. Mm. It's going to be a very interesting uh, few months for sure. Um, James, I have to say it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme with us today to discuss uh, these issues. And until we touch base again in the future, I'm certain of that. Um, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on as well, because we're certainly not out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation yet. And let's just see what yeah. happens beyond then. OK, well, you stay safe. Yourself as well, James. Thanks ever so much. And for those tuning Thank in you. as well, do stay at home where you can do look after yourselves do stay safe because it really does make a difference in saving lives i was just speaking there to james emsley the ceo of elm legal services in bristol coming up next on today's program i'll be handing over to matthew o'neill for his exclusive interview with lord blunkett lord blunkett is an active member of the house of lords a former labor mp and secretary of state and the chairman of the leaders council of great britain and northern ireland despite being blind from birth he wrote to prominence did Lord Blunkett to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. 
Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the 
the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And 
one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. 
on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly 
there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.